Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Dr. Chris Morrissey here back for another episode of the Morrissey Movement. I want to thank everyone for listening to the show thus far. I really appreciate everybody. Uh, Today, we're going to jump into two words that actually sound similar and are sometimes confused with one another. So today, we're going to be talking about creatine and creatinine. Uh, So sometimes these are interchanged with each other. However, they are fairly different in nature. So I'm going to jump right into talking about uh, creatinine. So creatinine is a test that measures the creatinine level in the blood and or the urine. Uh, Creatinine is a waste product that is made by your muscles as part of regular everyday activity. Normally your kidneys filter creatinine from your body and send it out of the body in your urine. If there's a problem with your kidneys, creatinine can build up in the blood and less will be released into the urine So if your blood and or urine creatinine levels are not normal, it can be a sign of kidney disease. So what is the test used for? It is used to see if your kidneys are working normally. It is usually ordered along with other kidney function tests called blood urea nitrogen or BUN. Uh, This is usually ordered as part of a BMP, which is basic metabolic profile, or a CMP, which is a complete metabolic profile. So on a BMP, the other tests that are ordered also in in addition to these is sodium, potassium, chloride, carbon dioxide, the BUN and creatinine, which I stated before, and also glucose. The CMP, or the uh, complete metabolic profile, is another more comprehensive test um, that includes the tests that I just stated, but also looks at your liver enzymes, including your total bilirubin, your liver enzymes called AST or A and ALT, alkaline phosphatase, total protein, albumin, and calcium. So what are some symptoms that may indicate kidney disease? These include but are not limited limited to fatigue, puffiness around the eyes, swelling in your feet and or ankles, decreased appetite, frequent and painful urination, or urine that is fairly foamy or bloody in nature. If your doctor orders a urine urine creatinine test, this usually involves you peeing into a container for 24 hours. Uh, You also have to store it in the refrigerator or in a cooler with ice. So try not to get it mixed up with your lemonade or your apple juice because that could be fairly nasty. Um, There's actually an old medical movie parody uh, from the early 80s. It was made back in like 1982 called Young Doctors in Love. It's pretty damn funny, um, especially if you're in the medical field. It was directed by a guy named Gary Marshall. Uh, he's better known for directing movies like A League of Their Own, Pretty Woman, and Never Been Kissed. Um, so it's basically like the movie Airplane, if anybody's ever seen that, which is also a hilarious movie, but with medicine. So, you know, in a lot of the older movies and uh, sitcoms, you know, doctors are paged overhead, uh, which still happens today, but not nearly as often. But there's announcement 
that comes over the intercom just kind of randomly in the movie and it says due to a mix-up in urology apple juice will not be served in the cafeteria today so it makes me laugh every time i hear that so that's just really funny but anyway um so what does it mean if your levels are high so it could mean a lot of things including bacterial infection in your kidneys blocked urinary tract heart failure or complications of diabetes um, could also be autoimmune disease etc etc however levels can be temporarily elevated in pregnancy if you have a diet that's fairly high in red meat or intense exercise and certain medications can also do this <clears throat> so what's a normal level for uh, blood creatinine for men the average is 0.6 to 1.2 milligrams per deciliter and women is 0.5 to 1.1 milligrams per deciliter so the more muscle someone has the more creatinine that they produce so Typically, women have a little bit less muscle muscle mass than males. Um, that is why there's a little bit lower for the normal scale. Um, you may also hear medical care providers talk about something called GFR, which stands for glomerular filtration rate. This determines how well your determines how well your kidneys are functioning. So that's another test that is sometimes used in conjunction with these. So um, that's pretty much. <clears throat> Creatinine, so it has nothing to do with the supplementation. It has to do, again, with muscle byproducts um, that is being filtered through your kidneys that we can check to monitor your kidney function. So now that we talked about the creatinine, I'm going to switch gears and talk about creatine, <clears throat> which has you know, been discussed in quite detail in the literature. So um, <clears throat> I know I said before, but the two best supplements on the market with the most research and that will actually do what they stated to do is caffeine and creatine. So I did a whole separate podcast on caffeine. So if you want to hear that, please see episode eight to hear about all the things that I talked about with that. So um, this is going to be a little bit lengthy. I found a, um, a paper from the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition from 2021. So it was an evidence-based literature review. They covered quite a few um, papers in this, but there's like 10 questions that are addressed, which there's a lot of these questions that overlap, you know, and people asking about creatine um, supplementation. So the questions are, and then I'm going to cover each one separately. So number one, does creatinine, sorry, <laughs> I, I just did it. Uh, does creatine supplementation lead to water retention? Number two, is creatine an anabolic steroid? Number three, does creatine supplementation cause kidney damage or renal dysfunction? Number four, does creatine supplementation cause hair loss or baldness? Number five, does creatine supplementation lead to dehydration and muscle cramping? Number six, is creatine supplementation harmful for children and adolescents? Number seven, does creatine supplementation increase body fat? Number eight, is creatine supplementation loading phase required number nine is creatine supplementation beneficial for older adults and number 10 are other forms of creatine similar or superior to creatine monohydrate um so there's a lot of questions and there's like a kind of a lot of things to talk about about each separate question so um i'm just going to get right into that uh so first off what is creatine Creatine, or also known as methylguanidine acetic acid, is endogenously formed, which means inside the body, from reactions involving the amino acids arginine, glycine, and methionine in the kidneys and liver. Exogenously, creatine is primarily consumed from meat or, and or as a dietary supplement. So eating a lot of red meat actually can increase your creatine content since, you know, typically most of the meats we eat are muscle-based meats, so that'll 
thus increase your creatine also. So the first question that was asked, does creatine lead to water retention? The purported myth of creatine supplementation increasing body water or TBW, um, total body water, is likely due to an early research that showed that creatine supplementation at 20 grams per day for six days was associated with water retention. It does appear that the most common adverse effects of creatine supplementation is water retention in the early stages, so the first few to several days. Um, so, for example, studies have shown that three days of creatine supplementation increased total body water and extracellular body water and also intracellular body water. Unfortunately, based off these short-term responses, the notation that creatine increases water retention over the long term has been widely, has been widely accepted. Creatine is an osmotically active substance. Thus, an increase in the body's creatine could theoretically result in increased water retention. Creatine is taken up into the muscles from circulation by a sodium-dependent creatine transporter. Since the transport involves sodium, water will also be taken up into muscles to help uh, maintain the intracellular osmolality. However, considering the activity of the sodium-potassium pumps, it is not likely that intracellular sodium concentration is dramatically affected by creatine supplementation. There were a few studies quoted in the paper with regards to creatine supplementation and weight training. Body mass was increased with creatine supplementation. One study had males loading with creatine and then using it daily for 28 days. So again, the loading phase was typically 20 grams a day for the first 6 to 7 days, followed up by daily supplementation anywhere between three to five grams per day uh, and that, so in that study quoted there was no increase in intracellular or extracellular water or total body water in summary short-term effects may increase intracellular body water but no increases in total body water over a long period of time so as a result creatine may not lead to water retention so the next question is creatine an anabolic steroid Anabolic steroids are synthetic versions of testosterone, which is an androgenic hormone, which is also produced endogenously within both males and females, and is used in conjunction with the resistance training with the intent of enhancing muscle mass and strength due to increases in muscle protein synthesis. This increase in muscle protein synthesis is due to testosterone's ability to enter the muscle cell, bind with the intracellular antigen receptor, which is the receptor for the testosterone molecule, and then increase the expression of various muscle-specific genes. Creatine is converted to phosphocreatine, which is regulated by the enzyme creatine kinase in the muscle, and then used to create intracellular adenosine triphosphate or ATP production. So if people remember from basic biology, that ATP is basically the energy for the cell. So um, you know, there's the, if any of you took advanced biology or physiology, there's like the, like glycolysis, which is the first step, which is kind of anaerobic metabolism. And then there goes to the uh, Krebs cycle and then onto the electron transport chain to produce more um, of these ATP molecules that can be used for energy during exercise. So creatine supplementation, however, can increase the capacity of ATP and energy produced during heavy anaerobically related exercise, thereby possibly increasing muscle power, repetitions, and exercise volume, which can subsequently contribute to muscle performance and hypertrophy over the course of a training period. So basically, it can make your muscles bigger and stronger, is what that means in layman's terms. So outcomes of steroids and creatine can be similar. However, anabolic steroids are different chemical structure, and this is a class C schedule three controlled substance regulated by the FDA. Creatine, on the other hand, is a legal substance and is actually classified as a dietary supplement. So creatine is not a steroid. 
And let's be honest, yes, you can make gains with creatine, but anabolic steroids, you can go to a whole new level. And I am not at any means suggesting someone should take steroids. I'm just saying that creatine isn't as good as anabolic steroids. So number three, does creatine cause kidney damage or renal dysfunction? So questions and concerns involving creatine supplementation and kidney damage and renal dysfunction is common in terms of pervasive misinformation in the sports nutrition arena, the notion that creatine supplementation leads to kidney damage or renal function is perhaps second only to the myth that protein supplementation and high habitual protein intake causes kidney damage, which that's been an ongoing thing for years that people believed also. However, I will discuss protein specifically in a different podcast, but in short, high dose protein diets do not typically uh, resolve or um, make someone have renal dysfunction. So um, today, after greater than 20 years of research, which demonstrates no adverse effects for recommended doses of creatine supplements on kidney health, unfortunately, this concern persists. While the origin is unknown, the connection between creatine supplementation and kidney damage or renal dysfunction could be traced back to two things: a poor understanding of creatine and creatine or and creatinine metabolism, and a case study that was published back in 1998. In skeletal muscle, both creatine and phosphocreatine are degraded non-enzymatically to creatinine, which is then exported to the blood and excreted in the urine, which we had talked about above. Healthy kidneys filter creatinine, which would otherwise increase in the blood. Therefore, blood creatinine levels can be used as a proxy marker of kidney function. However, the amount of creatinine in the blood is related to the muscle mass, i.e. males have higher blood creatinine than females, which we talked about earlier as well, in both dietary creatine and creatinine intake. Both blood and urine creatinine may be increased by ingestion of creatine supplementation and creatine-containing foods such as meat, which I talked about above also. Creatine is normally not present in the urine, but can reach very high levels, greater than 10 grams a day during creatine supplementation. There was this case back in 1998 where a young male with a disease called focal segmental glomulosclerosis and relapsing nephrotic syndrome was reported. So basically, he had areas of his kidneys that didn't work very well. Um, He had kidney disease for about eight years and was treated with cyclosporine, which is an immune um, altering drug for this for about five years. And then he started using creatine. So his kidney function worsened a little bit. So it was assumed it was from creatine. Research since then has shown that creatine in healthy individuals consuming regular doses has no effect on renal function. It is prudent to be cautious when ingesting any dietary supplement or medication. Survey data indicates that creatine supplementation usage ranges between 8 and 74% in athletes and other exercising individuals, which was reviewed by Rawson et al. Even with a low estimate of 8%, which I feel is fairly underreported of exercising individuals using creatine supplementation, this indicates thousands of exposures across several decades. If the link between creatine supplementation and kidney health was valid, there would be an expected increase in kidney damage and renal dysfunction in low risk, which meaning young, healthy, physically fit individuals, since 1992 after Harris et al. published their seminal work. After nearly 30 years of post-marketing surveillance, thousands of exposures, and multiple clinical trials, no such evidence exists. So in summary, 
Experimental and controlled research over the years indicates that creatine supplementation, when ingested at recommended dosages, does not result in kidney damage and or renal dysfunction in healthy individuals. So, again, if anybody does have a history of kidney dysfunction, you should always talk with your physician before starting any new supplements. Does creatine, does creatine cause hair loss or baldness? The vast majority of speculation regarding the relationship between creatine supplementation and hair loss or baldness stems from a single study by Vander Merwe, I may have said that wrong at all, where college-age male rugby players who supplemented with creatine, which 25 grams per day for seven days, which is a loading phase, followed by five grams per day thereafter, for an additional 14 days, ex- experience an increase in serum DHT levels, which stands for dihydrotestosterone, specifically DHT increased by 56% after the seven-day loading period and remained 40% above baseline values after the 14-day maintenance period. Given that changes in these hormones, particularly DHT, have been linked to some, but not all, occurrences of hair loss or baldness, the theory that creatine supplementation leads to hair loss and baldness gains some momentum, and this potential link continues to be a common question or myth today. It is important to note that the results of Van Der Merwe, M-E-R-W-E, at all, have not been replicated, and that intense resistance exercise itself can cause increases in these androgenic hormones. To date, 12 other studies have investigated the effects of creatine supplementation with doses ranging from 3 to 25 grams per day for 6 days up to 12 weeks on testosterone. Two studies reported small, physiologically insignificant increases in total testosterone after 6 and 7 days of supplementation, while the remaining 10 studies reported no change in testosterone concentrations. In five of these studies, free testosterone, which the body uses to produce DHT, was also measured and no increases were found. So, in summary, the current body of evidence does not indicate that creatine supplements will increase total testosterone, free testosterone, DHT, or causes hair loss or baldness. So, this sort of goes with the, the uh, statement above about creatine being similar to anabolic steroids. Does creatine lead to dehydration and muscle cramping? Speculation exists that creatine supplementation causes dehydration and muscle cramping in the early 2000s with limited data and based primarily on speculation. The American College of Sports Medicine, or the ACSM, recommends that individuals controlling their weight and exercising intensely or in hot environments should avoid the use of creatine. The physiologic rationale suggests that creatine supplementation may cause dehydration and muscle cramping is based on the premise that creatine is an osmotically active substance found primarily in skeletal muscle and may alter whole body fluid distribution by preferentially increasing intracellular water uptake and retention, which meaning it's inside of the cells in your body, particularly over the short term. In situations of body water loss, such as severe sweating and exercise, from exercise and or increased environmental temperature, the bound intracellular fluid, in theory, may be detrimental to thermal regulation and lead to extracellular dehydration, meaning fluid outside of the cells, electrolyte imbalance and muscle cramping, or other heat-related musculoskeletal issues. The initial loading phase, like I talked about before, of creatine is 20 grams a day for five to seven days, typically results in one to three kilogram increase in body mass, mostly attributed to net body water retention. Some anecdotal evidence indicates that creatine users perceive supplementation to result in some adverse effects. For example, in a survey involving 219 athletes, 90 participants reported using creatine with 34 of them, which is 38%, reported negative effects such as cramping, 
Similarly, in the NCAA or National Collegiate Athletic Association Division I baseball and football players, there was a 52 um, people, athletes, using creatine, 25% reported incidents of muscle cramping and 13.5% reported symptoms of dehydration. Importantly, these studies failed to control for their use of other supplements and the dosage of the creatine ingested. So in summary... Experimental and clinical research does not validate the notion that creatine supplementation causes dehydration and muscle cramping. However, if you do notice you are experiencing this, you should increase your water and electrolyte intake to balance this if this is an issue for you. So another question is creatine harmful for children and adolescents? Concerns regarding the safety of creatine in children and adolescents, which is... uh, Um, looked at as less than 19 years of age continues to be highly prevalent the overwhelming majority of evidence in adult populations indicates that creatine supplementation both long and short term is safe and generally well tolerated however the question of whether or not this holds true for children and adolescents is relatively unclear the physiological rationale supporting the potential benefits of creatine in children and adolescents was first postulated by Unihan and colleagues in 2001, which established a strong basis for future applications of creatine for younger athletes. The majority of dietary supplement survey indicates that a relatively high percentage of youth and adolescents are currently or have tried creatine. There have been some studies that are done in older pediatric patients with lupus um, and reported improvement in the patients with no change in liver or kidney function. There was another study that was quoted on pediatric patients with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy following four months of creatine had improvements in fat-free mass and grip strength without harming kidney function, oxidative stress, or bone health. There was a lot more that was stated in this article. I just tried to summarize it so I didn't read this exact entire thing to you. So, in summary, based on the limited evidence, creatine supplementation appears safe and potentially beneficial for children and adolescents. Again, I'm not advocating that you put your child on creatine, but the literature seems to state that it is safe. Does creatine increase fat mass? So, the theory that creatine increases fat mass is a concern amongst exercising individuals possibly because some experience a gain in body mass from creatine itself. However, randomized controlled trials one week to two years in duration do not validate this claim. Acute creatine supplementation, which again is the loading phase for seven days, had no effect on fat mass in young adults. However, fat-free mass was increased. So their overall body mass is increasing, but when you look at the comparison of the amount of fat, this did not change. One might suggest that eight weeks or less of creatine supplementation is insufficient to arrive at a definite conclusion regarding creatine's effects on fat mass. Nonetheless, there are several investigations that have used much longer treatment periods. For example, healthy resistance-trained males were randomly assigned in a double-blind fashion to supplement with creatine 20 grams a day for one week followed by 5 grams a day for 11 weeks or placebo. So the researchers nor the people in the study didn't know if they were getting a placebo, which I'm assuming is just probably like a sugar powder or something. Um, Lean body mass and muscle fiber size increased, percent body fat and fat mass were unaffected over the 12-week training period. So in summary, creatine supplementation does not increase fat mass across a variety of populations that were tested. Is creatine loading phase required? So we've been talking a lot about the loading phase. So pioneering research in the early 1900s using animal models showed that creatine supplementation could augment creatine content by up to 70%. Decades later, Harris et al. published a seminal paper which showed that loading with creatine increased skeletal muscle creatine stores 
as evaluated for muscle bi- from muscle biopsies collected from the vastus lateralis in young, healthy human participants. So if you take your hand and kind of run it along the outside of your thigh, that muscle right there is the vastus lateralis muscle. So they just took a little muscle biopsy and looked at it under the microscope, and I'm assuming that they saw an increase in skeletal muscle size and or creatine content. This research sparked incredible interest in studying creatine supplementation strategies that would increase intramuscular creatine content, helping shape current recommendations. Creatine, quote-unquote, loading is defined as supplementing with oral creatine for 5 to 7 days, again with the doses of 20 to 25 grams per day, often divided into smaller doses throughout the day, so 4 to 5 five gram servings per day so instead of taking 20 grams all at once which probably would not be absorbed very well people are taking it four to five times per day creatinine i'm sorry again i keep doing that creatine loading may also be prescribed relative to body mass for example 0.3 grams per kilogram per day for five to seven days Um, and for example 21 grams a day for a 70 kilogram individual the loading phase of creatine supplementation is followed by daily maintenance quote unquote phase often ranging from three to five grams per day common misconception regarding creatine supplementation is that individuals must load with creatine to increase intramuscular creatine stores and then subsequently experience the purported or aerogenic benefits of creatine supplementation however lower daily creatine supplementation dosing strategies anywhere three to five grams per day are well established throughout the scientific literature for increasing the intramuscular creatine stores leading to greater improvement in muscle mass performance and recovery compared to placebo while effective these non-loading creatine supplements dosing strategies delay maximum intracellular creatine storage so for example in the classic loading versus daily maintenance dose comparison study by holtman et al creatine accumulation in muscle mass was similar around 20% increase after participants consumed 3 grams per day for 28 days or 20 grams per day for 6 days. Thus, it is currently recommended that individuals consume 3 to 5 grams per day of creatine for a minimum of 4 weeks in order to experience similar skeletal muscle saturation levels. Determination of which creatine supplement strategy is preferred may depend on the goal of the individual. So, if an athlete is hoping to maximize the potential of creatine in a very short period of time less than a month then adopting the loading strategy may be advised so in summary accumulating evidence does show that you do not have to load creatine lower daily dosages of creatine three to five grams are effective for increasing intramuscular creatine stores muscle aggregation and also muscle performance slash recovery so if you're you know you have a uh say some sort of a uh, game or some sort of event you're training for and it's in a short period of time and you said you think you want to load up with creatine before if it's less than a month away you should probably do the loading phase for one week and then you can supplement daily but uh, you know say you've got a race you're going to do in three to four months I would just probably start with the low dose and just doing it daily for up until then to see if that helps you so Is creatine beneficial for older adults? There has been an increasing number of studies showing that creatine supplementing plays a therapeutic role in a variety of clinical conditions. Um, Perhaps one of the most promising conditions that could benefit from creatine supplementing is age-related sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is defined as a progressive and generalized skeletal muscle condition, so you're losing muscle mass, strength, and functionality that is associated with an increased likelihood of adverse outcomes including falls, fractures, physical disability, and mortality. 
While resistance training is considered cornerstone in the treatment of sarcopenia, accumulating evidence indicates that creatine supplementation may enhance the anabolic environment produced by resistance training, subsequently mitigating indices of sarcopenia. Creatine supplementation can increase functionality, such as strength, activities of daily living, or ADLs, and also delaying fatigue and muscle mass in older adults. However, the literature indicates that creatine supplementing alone, that is, just taking creatine by itself and not doing resistance training, is unlikely to result in a substantial gains in muscle strength and functional performance. So it'd be like the same thing as, you know, taking steroids and not lifting and expecting your muscles to get so much bigger. But it does seem to improve some of the parameters of muscle fatigue. Likewise, most studies fail to show a benefit effect of chronic creatine supplementation alone, which is greater than 30 days on lean mass. For instance, we recently showed that creatine supplementing was not able to increase lean mass in postmenopausal women who supplement with creatine for 3 grams a day for 2 years, suggesting that creatine supplementation without exercise may be ineffective to prevent sarcopenia like we just talked about above. It is likely that increases in lean muscle mass occasionally attributed by increased body water since creatine is osmotically active and it can sometimes induce water retention. Regarding aging bone, emerging research over the past decade has shown some benefits from creatine supplementation. For example, healthy older males, which are greater than 50, who supplemented with creatine and performed whole body resistance training for 10 to 12 weeks experienced an increase in upper limb bone mineral content and a reduction in bone resorption compared to placebo. So I did a podcast, I believe it was episode two or maybe three, and when I talked about bone density that resistance training alone can increase your bone density. Um, So this is possibly stating that if you use creatine also, this may also increase to a higher level of bone mineral content. More recently, Chilibeck et al. showed that 52 weeks of creatine supplementation and supervised whole body resistance training attenuated the rate of bone mineral loss in the hip region compared to placebo in postmenopausal females. However, a two-year creatine supplementation protocol was ineffective for improving bone mass or bone geometry in postmenopausal women, again suggesting that creatine should be combined with resistance exercise to produce beneficial bone adaptations. So in summary, the ground body of evidence does state that creatine, particularly when used with exercise, can provide musculoskeletal and performance benefits in older adults. So we're getting close. We're almost done. Are other forms of creatine similar or superior to monohydrate and is creatine stable in solutions or beverages? So creatine monohydrate powder has been the most extensively studied and commonly used form of creatine in dietary supplementing since the early 1990s. Creatine monohydrate was used in early studies to assess bioavailability, determine proper dosages, and to assess the impact of oral ingestion of creatine on blood creatine and intramuscular creatine stores. These studies indicate that orally ingested creatine monohydrate, which again, 3 to 5 grams per day, increases blood concentrations of creatine for 3 to 4 hours after ingestion, thereby facilitating the uptake of creatine into tissue through diffusion and creatine transporters. So basically what this means is they did a study, they, they, they took it in, about 3 to 4 hours or so after ingesting it, it helps shuttle creatine into the muscles and into the cells. Additionally, it is well established that around 99% of orally ingested creatine monohydrate is either taken up by tissue or excreted in the urine as creatine through normal digestion. Short-term loading with creatine monohydrate, again, 5 grams four times a day for 5 to 7 days, has been reported to increase intramuscular creatine stores by 20 to 40%. 
and exercise performance capacity by 5 to 10%. Creatine monohydrate supplementing during training, 5 to 25 grams a day for 4 to 12 weeks, has been reported to promote gains in muscle mass, strength, and exercise capacity. Despite the known efficacy, safety, and low cost of creatine monohydrate, a number of different forms of creatine have been marketed as more effective for fewer anecdotally reported adverse effects. These marketing efforts have fueled speculation that creatine monohydrate is not the most effective or safest form of creatine to consume. This notion is clearly refuted by understanding the well-known physiochemical properties of creatine monohydrate, as well as current creatine uh, supplementation literature. So there's a bunch of different forms. So for example, there's creatine salts, creatine complex with other nutrients, creatine dipeptides, etc. have been marketed as more effective of creatine than, other, than the basic creatine monohydrate. However, there are no peer-reviewed published papers showing that the ingestion of equal amounts of creatine salts or other forms of creatine like effervescent creatine, creatine ethyl ester, buffered creatine, creatine nitrate, creatine dipeptides, or the micro amounts of creatine contained in creatine serum and beverages, which is around 25 to 50 milligrams. So like for instance, Bang, if you've listen to the, the uh, caffeine lecture, um, Bang actually has creatine infused in the uh, energy drink as well. Um, so increases creatine storage of muscles to a greater degree than creatine monohydrate. So that's the theory. In fact, most studies show that ingestion of these other forms have less physiological impact than creatine monohydrate on intramuscular creatine stores and or performance that any performance differences were more related to other nutrients that creatine is bound to or co-ingested with a supplement formulation. So some of these creatine formulations have other things with them. It's not just pure creatine. Some of them have electrolytes, some of them have B vitamins, some of them have caffeine, like in some of the pre-workouts. So there's a lot of other variables that weren't really controlled for. So this makes sense given that these other forms contain less creatine per gram than creatine monohydrate and 99% of the ingested creatine monohydrate is absorbed into the blood, then taken up into muscle or excreted. Creatine monohydrate crystallizes from water as monoclinic prisms that hold one molecule of water of crystallization per molecule of creatine. Subsequent drying of creatine monohydrate at about 100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees water or Fahrenheit <clears throat> removes the water of crystallizing, crystallization yielding anhydrous creatine, which is 100% creatine. So anhydrous just means without water. Creatine is considered a weak base. For the uh, chemistry nerds out there, the PKB is 11.02 at 25 degrees Celsius. That can only form salts with strong acids with a PKA less than 3.98. Creatine can also serve as a complexing agent with other compounds via ionic bi binding. Creatine monohydrate powder contains the highest percentage of creatine around 87.9% other than creatine anhydrous. Creatine monohydrate manufacturing in Germany involves adding acetic acid to sodium sarcosinicate, heating, adding cyamide, not cyanide. Cooling to promote crystallization, separation, and filtration, and drying has been reported to produce 99.9% pure creatine monohydrate with no contaminants. Meanwhile, other sources of creatine monohydrate that have different starting materials um, which is a bunch of chemical formulas I'm not even going to read, and also methods of creatine synthesis, particularly from sources produced in China, have been found to contain up to 5.4% dicyadamide, 0.09% dihydro 
triazine, 1.3% creatine, dimethyl sulfate, theorea, and or higher concentrations of heavy metals like mercury and lead due to possible use of different chemical precursors that are poorly controlled synthesis processes and or inadequate filtration methods that are more readily produce these contaminants. So that's a lot of jargon. So basically it's not as pure and it might have some contaminants in there. While the effects of ingesting these compounds on health are unknown, contamination with dihydrotyrosine has been suggested to be of greatest concern since it is structurally related to carcinogenic compounds. For this reason, German-sourced creatine monohydrate has been primarily used in research to establish safety and efficacy and is therefore the recommended source of creatine monohydrate to use in dietary supplements. Creatine monohydrate powder is very stable, showing no signs of degradation into, into creatinine over the years, even at elevated storage temperatures. However, creatine is not stable in solution due to intramolecular cyclization that converts creatine to creatinine, especially at higher temperatures and lower pH. The breakdown of creatine can be reduced or halted by lowering the pH under 2.5, or increasing the pH above 12.1. So um, stomach acids around 3 pH, and you know, um, which is very acidic. So the lower the number, the more acidic that it is. Um, this is the reason that less than 1% of creatine monohydrate is degraded to creatinine during the digestive process, and creatine is taken up by tissue or excreted in the urine after ingestion. Moreover, since creatine is an amphilytic amino acid, it is not very soluble in water. For example, creatine monohydrate dissolves at 14 grams per liter at 20 degrees Celsius with a neutral pH of 7. Mixing creatine in higher temperature solution increases solubility, which is the reason why initial studies administered creatine in hot tea, but the solubility has no influence on tissue uptake. The lack of solubility and stability of creatine in solution is the reason that creatine is primarily marketed in powder form and efforts to develop stable beverages containing the physiologic effective doses of creatine have been unsuccessful. So even if a beverage says you're getting creatine, you're probably not getting a whole lot. So in summary, while some forms of creatine may be more stable than creatine monohydrate, when mixed in fluid, evidence shows clearly that creatine monohydrate to be the optimal choice of your creatine supplementation. So again, this is not a sponsor. I am not sponsored by creatine to talk about this. I am just reading what I have found. So what is my take on creatine? I think it's a great supplement. I've been taking it off and on over the years. I never really paid a ton of attention when I was taking it regularly to see, oh my gosh, my lifts went up. I gained a bunch of weight, whatever, since I haven't really done it for some time. I'm actually getting ready to start using it again more regularly, so I'll keep you updated on that. Um, I just, I will probably just use it daily instead of the loading dose, since really I will not be able to do this four times a day. I will forget and or leave it somewhere or whatever, so I'm just going to do the once a day, um, probably with some sort of a protein shake, either pre or post-workout. And the supplement will not help you really acutely in the gym. You know, like they stated above, if you do the loading dose, you may get a little bit more shuttled into your muscles quicker. Um, so taking it like you would a pre-workout 30 to 60 minutes before, you're not going to go out and add 20 to 40 pounds on your squat or your deadlift on that day. So um, taking a bunch right before you go to the gym isn't really going to be super helpful. So. So sorry, that was kind of a lot of words, but I really felt that that was a great review to cover a lot of the questions that people have as far as the safety of creatine and what will happen and all that good stuff. So um, so again, sorry for the going a little bit longer than normal, but I just felt I wanted to cover all those things. So for the final discussion, you know, the, the title of the talk today is creatine, creatine and cutlery. So um, 
I found another weird random fact for the week that I actually learned last week from my office nurse, um, Nicole Brooks. So shout out to Nicole for educating me on her vast knowledge on cutlery anatomy. So a primary care provider called my office and stated that one of their employees had swallowed a piece of the plastic fork and asked if there's anything I need to do about that. And I asked kind of jokingly, what part of the fork did they swallow? And she said it was the tine, T-I-N-E. I said, what the heck is a tine? Then she subsequently kind of made an up and down motion with her finger saying it was the pokey part of the fork. So my immediate response was, why do you know that? And she was like, I don't know. I just do. So I was astonished by her knowledge of cutlery. So I did my own research. So did you know that there's actually seven parts to a fork? Yeah, me neither. I had no idea. So the tine, which Nicole astutely pointed out, is the pokey part like we talked about. So there's three to four depending on the kind of fork you have. Then you have the points, which is actually the very end of the tine, which is actually the extreme pokey part of the fork, if you will. Then the areas between the tines are called slots. So the area where food will sometimes get stuck in between the prongs or the, or the tines is called slots. The root of the fork is the bottom of the tines where they all kind of mesh together. So if you think about a hand, so if your fingers are like the tines, then the root would be considered like your palm area. So then the handle is the end of the fork that you hold while eating, which is sort of self-explanatory, I feel. And then the last part is the back, which is the underside of the neck of the fork. So then the neck is the area that connects the root to the end of the fork. So like that would be kind of like your wrist if you're thinking about an arm or a hand. So there you have it. Now you are a, col a, col a cutlery expert just like Nicole. So kudos to you. Well, that's the end of the show for this week. Um, thank you, ev Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please give it up to a five-star review. It really helps the show to reach more people. And also shoot me an email with any topic or idea or question you'd like me to address. I'd be more than happy to do that. And anything you guys want to know about. So again, you can reach me at themorrisseymovement at gmail.com. So you guys have a great week. Take a scoop of creatine, stir it with your fork, specifically the tines, and then dominate the day. Get up and get moving. And remember, movement is the best medicine. 